Welcome back to the All Things Food podcast. I am your host, Nikki Hirsthaus. I am a registered dietitian, foodie, and founder of Nikki Hirsthaus Nutrition, a dietitian practice specializing in all things gut health. In this week's episode, I am chatting to Hannah O'Brien. Hannah is the co-founder of Hunt and Gather Beco, a family-owned, sustainable, ethical, beekeeping and honey-producing business based near Raglan in the Waikato. Along with her husband Rory and their three children, they live on a small lifestyle block with a range of animals and wild gardens. This is a fascinating conversation about the world of beekeeping and honey production and some of the big decisions that producers need to make for sustainability. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Nikki. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and I'm excited to talk all about beekeeping and honey and everything that is your life now. But I guess that has not always been your life, has it? And it would be great if you could take us back to where the story really begins and how you ended up getting to become a beekeeper. Sure. Um, Yeah, you're right. It's definitely not what I thought I would be doing at this point in my life. But, um, you know, plans don't always turn out like you think they will. So um, originally I was a primary school and early childhood teacher and my husband Rory was um, dairy farming and we were um, dairy farming together for quite a while as well. Um, But about seven years ago, we just decided that farm ownership was our goal, but it was just so far from reach for us as people who didn't have family farms or anything like that that we could move on to. So we decided we would take a, a change of career and... We knew we wanted to stay within the agriculture sector um, but just kind of pivot a bit and Rory just applied for a job as a beekeeper. Um, At the time we were living in the Coromandel and he applied for a job down in Cromwell and we just thought, well, let's just go and do that. So, yeah, he um, he started beekeeping and did that for about three years for other other people and then we just thought oh you know that looks easy we'll start our own beekeeping (laughs) business um turns out it's not easy at all but it's really fun and yeah we're now five years come into our sixth year of running our own beekeeping company so our brand is hunt and gather bee company and we're running um, just over 300, about 350 beehives up in Raglan. So, yeah, not quite where we thought we would be, but we're, we really love it. We're super passionate about bees and beekeeping, and it's, a, it's an awesome thing to do with your time. So what does the farm involve at the moment? I mean, what's the setup there? Sure. So we actually operate off our lifestyle block, which is just a little two-acre block. So we don't really have any hives on our land except ones that we're kind of nursing. So the setup that we have is that we place our hives on other people's farms. So we have partnerships with farmers who will let us come onto their land and place our hives there. So for them they get the benefits of the pollination from the bees on their property. So for their pastures or their crops or whatever they're 
whatever they're up to. And then they get a bit of honey um, in exchange as well. And for us, it allows us just massive access to, to bush blocks is what we're targeting. So we're usually on kind of marginal farms or farms that border onto the bush. Um, so it gives us amazing access and just a huge bank of land that we can work with because obviously bees need quite a lot of of land um so yeah we're lucky to have really awesome partnerships with a whole group of farmers which is pretty cool that's really cool so i mean it's like you end up supporting each other for both ventures really yeah definitely there's great spin-offs for them and in in terms of their crops you know if they're pasture farmers and they have growing clover or something like that you know we can get a honey crop off it and they can get great pollination so they'll have better pastures and um you know in turn they have better healthier animals and yeah it means you, we just wouldn't be able to do it any other way because we just require so much land that mm. it's just too far out of our reach so yeah it, it's cool it means that all we have is a, a four bay shed and um a small amount of equipment mainly just a ute and a bit of beekeeping gear and we can kind of be pretty mobile and and go to the places where the good honey's being made yeah that's a really cool setup the big question is well how do you even make honey yeah that's a great question actually (laughs) um so our bees make honey it's about a six to eight week period is the only time in the year that they're actually collecting nectar and turning it into honey so we're about to start our season end of October um or early early November really through to kind of end of December early January is our honey flow time becoming more and more unpredictable when it will start and end with the weather patterns kind of changing but yeah that's that's pretty much the window so yeah, at the moment we're placing our hives out onto their sites, so we'll target certain varieties of honey that we want. We're not big manuka honey producers by any means. Um, we're pretty much priced out of that market because a lot of the access to, to manuka country you've got to pay for now, and it's okay. just kind of quite political and quite far beyond our reach. So we tend to go for um, bush honey. So we do like a rewarewa or a kanuka or a few blends of honey, which are incredible honeys. They're so delicious and really good for you, just super underrated. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll follow the flowering um, periods. So, you know, first up for us is rewarewa, so that will start flowering in the next couple of weeks. So hives will go into there first um, and then we'll have hives in succession for um, kanuka and manuka flows that come after that. So, yeah, basically we'll, depending on the size of the property, we'll place hives there and then the bees will go out and forage once the nectar starts coming into the flowers. So they go out, they... um, swallow the nectar into their honey stomachs and then they fly back to their hives and um, by that time the nectar's kind of mixed with um, enzymes from their stomachs and then they'll regurgitate the the nectar into the hives and it's and it's honey and they store it inside little cells in their in their hive and they just once the nectar's going they'll just keep breeding and keep flying and collecting and um, quite quickly they'll fill their hives with honey and we'll keep 
giving them more room, putting more honey supers on or more honey boxes on, and they'll just keep keep going until the nectar dries up. And then that's kind of our our year's income is made in kind of six to eight weeks in, yeah. in the middle of the summer. And then we take all yeah. the honey or most of the honey off and, and that's the end of it. And then what happens with the honey once you take it from the hives? So this year for the first time we'll extract our own honey. Usually we've um, contracted that out. But what we do is bring the whole, those kind of bright colourful boxes that you see on the hives. Um, Usually we'll leave the bottom one or two and all the others from the stack will come back. And then it just goes through a process of uh, like pricking the frames. So inside those boxes there's 10 uh, frames of honey and they'll come out one at a time and we'll prick them to break the wax that's sealing in the honey. And then they're spun out in a honey spinner and all of the honey kind of flows out of the cells onto the sides of the spinner and drops down into the bottom and is pumped out into like oil drums. Um, and that's what we store it in until we pack it into into jars to be sold. So it's a, it's a little bit of a process, but it's all a, all a summer job really they make yeah we take it off the hives and then we take it out of the hives and get it ready to to be packed into jars yeah and then if it goes into the oil drums to be stored how long does it um last there so honey is one of the only products that doesn't actually have an expiry doesn't we don't even legally have to label it with an expiration date it's pretty much a pure sugar almost so yeah Unless it comes into contact with water, it won't go off. So you can keep okay. it 20, 30, 40 years if you want to. Yeah. And there's no real issues with it. The only time we have an issue is when the honey's been extracted, if there was too much moisture in the honey. So if the bees weren't able to dry it out sufficiently inside the hive, it'll have too much water content and then it will ferment in the barrel and the barrel will kind of explode um that's the only time you get an issue is if there's too much water but yeah otherwise I mean that's one of the great things about producing a product like honey it's it has a super long shelf life so we can store Mm. it for a long time yeah and is there any change in the quality of the honey if it's stored not really, not the quality. Um, so with your manuka honey, that people store that on purpose for certain different periods of time because the the UMF rating or the, that, that kind of antibacterial quality that you're looking for will increase over time to a certain point and okay. then it will start to decrease. So they'll often strategically age their honey, kind of like a wine. Um, yeah. They're looking for a kind of a sweet spot with it. And, excuse the pun. Um <laughs> Yeah, the consistency of it will change over time, so it will granulate and crystallise, but you have to gently warm it to get it out of the barrel anyway. So it doesn't, no, it doesn't really change the quality of it at all. It's a pretty stable product. We're we're lucky in that way. Yeah, it's definitely one of those, I guess, commodities within the food system that you don't have to deal with all of that going off. Um, I guess you did mention one thing about if the, the honey has too much moisture on it, and that's actually from when the bees are producing the honey. Is there anything else that sort of can not quite go to plan 
that's actually just down to how the bees are living or producing the honey? Yeah, in terms of the honey, um, there's not a huge amount really that can go wrong. The moisture content is definitely one. Um, we have all our honey tested for um, poison. So there's a certain type of, of poisonous plant that um, it's actually a process where the vine hoppers will, will feast on the poisonous plant and then the bees will collect the excretions from the vine hoppers and that can get into your honey. So all of our honey, anyone's honey in New Zealand has to be tested for totem poison. Um, okay. That's obviously a disaster if you have that in your honey because it'll kill people. It's pretty, pretty bad, but very uncommon as well. Mm. Um, now, for certain countries, like for Japan, we're testing for glyphosate residue in honey. Um, again, so far, touch wood, we haven't had any traces of glyphosate, but it's it is possible that there could be traces come up. Yeah. Um, again, super low risk i mean it's yeah very low amounts of it but it, it can happen um no i mean that's it i mean there's lots of risks with keeping bees uh there's a lot of different diseases and things that we have to manage with the bees themselves but honey really is a, is a pretty low risk product once you've got it out of the hives mm. Interesting. And with regards to the bees, this might sound like a silly question, but how do the bees know which plants to go to? Say you're trying to make a clover blend of honey. How do they know? That's a really good question. It's something that we get asked all the time, so it's not silly at all. <laughs> um, it's, it's a combination of us really watching the flowering closely so we will strategically choose areas where we'll place our hive so we'll go and assess an area and go there's loads of rewarewa in this particular place so we'll place our hives here we'll wait till the buds are just opening up so we know that the nectar is about to start flowing we'll put the hives in just at the right time or, or or if the hives are already there we'll put the honey boxes on just at the right time and certain varieties are easier than others like a rewarewa or a clover the bees really prefer those flowers so they will most likely go for them um, and then once that flowering period has finished we'll take the honey boxes away and put new ones on so to try and keep that crop separate some like manuka are more difficult because the bees don't particularly like manuka flower it's hard for them to work they have a lot of flowers that don't have much nectar so they're visiting a lot of flowers to get mm. you know to fill their honey stomach um so they're a little more difficult and in that case you're really trying to choose areas where they don't have many other options that you know, you put them there and manuka is all that there is to eat. So they'll they'll still forage it, but you're going to get a much smaller crop because there's just not as much nectar available for them. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of watching the flowering and it's a bit of timing. You know, where you place things and what's going to be available, and when you put on and take off the honey boxes. Yeah. 
Interesting. And that's interesting what you say, that they don't necessarily like the Monica flowers. Is the work that's required by the bees part of why it's a somewhat more expensive honey? It is. You get a, a lesser volume of honey if you're trying to get a manuka crop in general so yeah you need more hives in the area to Mm. work more flowers to collect the nectar um yeah so yeah i'd say that does have something to do with it it's a tricky crop to get and then again you're really looking for those areas where there's nothing else because if you've got you know a bit of a manuka forest but it's surrounded by clover or something like that they're going to fly right past the manuka and go to something easier so Mm. trying to secure those properties where they don't have other options is also tricky and becoming really expensive because you're competing against other people who want access to that land as well and then price starts to come into it so whoever generally whoever will pay the most for it is going to get the access yeah and so the bees work for about six to eight weeks of the year to produce honey and I guess how long or how many bees does it take to even just get like a 500 gram pot of honey? So on average we're expecting about 20 kilos per hive per summer so Yeah, so that's an average. So some hives will produce, you know, 60, 80 kilos if they're really cranking and some you won't get a crop off at all because they're just not strong enough or the weather's been terrible. But on average, we're looking, yeah, kind of 18 to 20 kilos is what we would expect. So, yeah, that's, I don't know, that's a lot of 500-gram jars. (laughs) (laughs) And how many, I guess, just to put that into context, how many bees would there be per hive so on the peak of the summer you're looking about sixty thousand bees per hive so okay. yeah one hive sixty thousand bees they'll produce on average about 20 kilos yeah yeah and and would you say that those sixty thousand bees per hive are they your bees and they'll always come back to your hives yeah, yeah, they are. So in their hive, they have their queen. So down in the first layer or the first box at the bottom, first one or two boxes, their queen will be down there. So she emits a pheromone and she's also generally the mother of them all. You know, she has laid the egg, which has become the bee, which has become the forager. So they know her pheromone and they know also by um i think they use magnetic fields to almost like gps themselves back to their hive so they will go out and forage and they know their way back to their hive um yeah so each colony yeah i mean technically we do own them but they can kind of fly away anytime they want we just try to provide them a really nice house that they want to come back to at the end of every day and hope that they stay there (laughs) yeah yeah and outside of that six to eight weeks when you've you're putting the hives out do those hives stay on the other land for the rest of the year We do a bit of a mix. So wherever we can leave them, we do. We need to access them right through the winter to check on them and 
if they have gone through their honey stores then they'll need feeding and they need disease treating and things like that so if they're in a spot that we can access right through the winter that doesn't get too muddy or flood or something like that then we'll leave them if they are in a place that's not going to be accessible then we'll bring them out um, in kind of March, April and put them somewhere closer to home that's more accessible. So in general we try we try to go by what's called non-migratory beekeeping which is some bigger companies will generally migrate their bees multiple times in a season and then put them in a kind of a bee farm over the winter so they'll track all their hives to Northland to start with and get a Manuka flow up there and then they might go to Coromandel or the Waikato, then they'll go to Taranaki, then they'll go to Central and then they might go down like Wairarapa or elsewhere. So they're trying to get multiple Manuka crops because that's right. where, you know, that's where the money is. But they are shifting and disorientating their bees every couple of weeks to try and do that which is a, you know, a good way, an, an efficient way to get as much manuka hunting as possible, but it's really hard on the bees. And mm. then you don't have that relationship with the landowner where they are getting the pollination benefits as well because they're getting bees kind of chucked in for a couple of weeks and then chucked away. So for the rest of the year, they're not pollinating anything for them. So yeah. as much as we can, we try to leave them put and just... Yeah. leave them alone and go and do what we need to with them and try and get that pollination for the forest, you know, for the bush around the Nahere and for the farmer as well for their for mm. their crops and their pastures. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of what the bees live off outside of the real, that peak honey-making season. Yeah, so we'll leave honey with them um, once, you know, we've taken off the bulk of the crop for our for us to extract and to sell we always leave them with a good box of honey which is their winter stores so we kind of figure they've put all that effort into making their food all summer long so mm. for us they deserve to have some to eat and also it's it's better for them you know it's got loads of goodness in honey so we'd rather that they're eating that than like a sugar substitute so yeah. we will leave them with honey for the winter but Sometimes, you know, weather happens or different things happen and we need to substitute them because they've run out of honey. So we do feed them at times, but in general they're eating their honey as much Mm. as possible. And is there anything else that you have to do to, to look after them? I mean, it's a constant checking and kind of nursing almost. Like the guys are... Trying to at the moment trying to get around the hives every ten days to two weeks, so they're constantly trying to make sure they've got enough food, they've got enough protein, they've got enough sugars, they've got enough space in their hives. So when the new bees are kind of being born, that there's enough room. So they're putting on boxes or taking off boxes or constantly monitoring their disease levels as well. So checking how many varroa mites they have and then treating accordingly. And, um, yeah, there's lots of little little jobs that need to be done all the time. We're treating for disease mm. like four times a year now just to keep on top of it and keep the bees from kind of succumbing to 
disease or pests. So there's always something to be done. And when there isn't something with the bees, there's, you know, prepping gear for next season. So building more honey boxes and more frames. And we made the choice when we first started that we would use all wooden hiveware. So these days you can buy moulded plastic frames that you just buy and chuck in the hive. They are instantly ready to go. But they don't have an end-of-life plan. They are non-recyclable and in general Mm. people are burning them or chucking them in the landfill after they kind of have a four, I don't know, three to five-year lifespan, I'd say. So for us that wasn't really an option. Um, Environmental sustainability is massive for us and it's kind of one of the reasons we wanted to start our own business. So we made the choice to use only wooden hiveware. But they come in little (laughs) tiny flat packs of little pieces that have to be hammered together and stapled and then wired with a wire and wax foundation slightly mounted onto it. So it's yeah a hundred times the work and a lot more expensive so there's always jobs like that to be done when the guys aren't working the bees as well yeah and the wooden ones do they are they constantly reusable yeah absolutely so they they have a longer lifespan we'd usually expect six to eight years out of a wooden frame but at the end of their life they're untreated New Zealand pine that we buy so they're compostable yeah yeah whatever you want to do with them really we get a little bit of wire out of them but then we recycle all that wire so it has the lowest kind of footprint that we Mm. can yeah that's really really good isn't it um and I mean, worth worth the extra time of putting them all together in the long. Yeah, run. I mean, unless you ask our accountant, who just thinks that they're <laughs> mental. But um, yeah, I mean, it's something that we're always trying to tell our customers about as well. It's and the bees by far will prefer to build out on on wood and wax than they do on plastic. And then there's yeah. no chance of any type of plastic contamination Mm. in the honey or leaching or anything like that that we don't possibly know a huge amount at the moment so we kind of have their conscience and then um yeah we we like to pass that information on to our customers as well and we hope that they appreciate it yeah yeah and that and that's a good sort of addition to the story and ethos behind the company um so i guess hunt and gather bee co which is your business um how has that changed and evolved over the years has it grown to sort of a place far beyond where you sort of had expected no I don't think it's grown to I don't think it's grown beyond what we expected it's still growing and we've still always got goals and we're always making new goals and kind of reevaluating and keeping on growing. It's grown from the initial stage where I think we harvested off like 20 honey boxes or something like that. So we had a couple of barrels of honey and we would just go to the local market once a month and the, our first crop we sold in three months and we thought we would have it for a year so after three months, we were kind of like, oh, God, what do we do now? We've sold our year's crop. Yeah. Um, so it's taken a bit of 
it's just taken a bit of growth and a bit of adjusting. But these days uh, we do generally three farmers markets a week and then we have shows like field days and food shows and all of those kind of things. And then we now supply around 45 retailers who sell our honey as well, so like Faro's and More Wilson's and those kind of guys. And it, yeah. it's just growing. It's Yeah, we have an online store that is pretty busy. So, yeah, we're, we're still not where we want to be yet, but we're definitely seeing some pretty great growth, which is cool. Yeah. And um, another sort of question, I sort of whether it aligns with your sort of ethos to keep things sustainable, but I, I mean, what about packaging with honey? Because a lot of honey comes in plastic, but then some comes in paper. And not that many comes in glass. So how yeah. does the packaging affect the honey and what do you guys choose to use? So it's a really controversial topic, I think, and a really fascinating topic, the packaging. The short answer is the best thing for the honey is a glass jar because it doesn't breathe or change when it gets heated or put in the sunlight or anything like that. You've got no chance of any kind of leachate from anything and yeah. it's fully recyclable within New Zealand we recycle our glass in New Zealand in general yeah um, but it definitely has its downsides in that it's heavier to freight so your mm. freight costs and your carbon footprint are, are higher because it's a heavier product to transport glass jars like we use aren't generally made in New Zealand they're usually imported from Asia yeah and they break. <laughs> Occasionally they break. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. when we're shipping stuff, we get a photo sent back that your honey arrived and it was smashed inside the box. So it's it's difficult. PET plastic is often made in New Zealand and it's 100% recyclable. You can now get PET jars that are 100% recycled, made from recycled materials. And that life cycle can continue within New Zealand without being sent offshore. So it's a viable mm. option. The the paper, the cardboard ones um, are a pretty cool option, but they're generally lined with plastic inside the cardboard, so it makes yeah. the cardboard non-recyclable. Yeah. So it's, it's a really tricky one, and especially as we're starting to look to export and the cost of freight now, you know, trying to freight pallet loads of stuff in glass jars is is expensive and then if something happens and it smashes it's even more expensive yes definitely but for us I mean within the New Zealand market and especially doing so many farmers markets we're able to take the glass jars back and refill them which is a big mm. that's the big advantage to glass is the reuse factor you know if people can reuse yeah. them in their pantries or give them back to us and we refill them, that's where you start to see that circular economy happening and that's yeah the ideal and situation. And that's, that's an awesome part of, of glass, especially I guess if you're providing that at the farmer's market and people are coming back to drop them off or get it refilled and that makes quite a difference. Definitely. I mean the challenge is how you do that on a large scale, you know, when you're supplying yeah. supermarkets and shipping internationally. Yeah. It doesn't become a viable option, but within New Zealand, I think it's the best option that we have. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, what is the difference between the different types of honey? Apart from taste, are there other components or properties of the honey that are different compared, you know, if you're having the manuka versus a clover versus the sort of bush honey blends? Yeah, absolutely. So every honey variety is basically the nectar from the tree and the stomach contents of the bee. So whatever that tree is producing is what is ending up in your in your honey. So they're all different. They all have quite a different chemical makeup. And it's similar to, you know, plant medicine where you use different plants for different ailments. Different plants, you know, have a different chemical makeup and a different health benefits I guess that they can bring I think the challenge that we have at the moment is that most of the research and most of the funding has gone the way of Manuka because there's that export dollar attached to it so Mm. we know quite a bit about Manuka with that one you're looking more at an antibacterial function Um, it's particularly good at uh, drawing honey in general is particularly good at drawing moisture out of wounds and then with the manuka you have kind of this antibacterial activity that happens as well and it's particularly long lasting when it's exposed to air compared to other types of of honey but the research that we are seeing on other types of honey is that they have in some cases equally incredible functions they're just not as well known and it's almost like there's this not wanting to know because we're trying to get as much money as we can out of manuka so it's a it's a tricky one but you know yorewarewa for example has shown some really good anti-inflammatory properties and your kanuk is showing some really incredible um, application on skin, you know, topical application for things like cold sores and um, acne and rosacea and things. So I think in the years to come, we will learn a lot more about the different New Zealand honey varieties and what we can expect from them in a, in a health sense. Mm, it's really interesting, and is it? Because it's sort of like the manuka has the monopoly. Yeah, I mean, a manuka absolutely has a monopoly at the moment. It's done fantastic things for the New Zealand honey industry. It's really shown people that honeys can be more than a table spread. You know, there's incredible benefits to it, and it can have great applications for health. It's shown that we can take a product and and add value to it. You know, we can drive, you know, create new markets and new um, niches within markets, and we can really get incredible value out of a problem, out of a, a New Zealand made product, especially in the export space. Hmm. And it's it's generated a lot of money within the New Zealand honey sector for sure. I mean, a lot of people were in it at the right time and made a lot of money out of it, which is fantastic. But it has had some detrimental effect for the other varieties of honey, and it's also Mm. had a bit of a detrimental effect on small-time producers because they're often really struggling to get access um, to manuka sites or they're struggling to get someone to buy their small amounts of honey or um, 
you know, the price of everything has gone up, like this, the price of any type of beekeeping equipment or bee health treatments or it's all gone up because all the suppliers were like, oh, you know, everyone's making all this money out of manuka honey, so we'll bump up our prices. And it, it, it has had a complicated effect for small producers and for other mono and multi-floral varieties. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it, it, is a, it is a tricky one. It's done great yeah. things, but it's also um, kind of made a few opportunities a bit harder to find, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's about trying to build up the reputation of the other types of honey now. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, we need research. We need to know more about them. And we need to be starting to get some of those stories out there. I mean, Manuka, like I said, it's done amazing things. But it's also starting to become, I, I think there's almost a little bit of a feeling out there that people are a little bit sick of hearing about it. You know, I think they're ready to hear about other things now. They're ready to yeah. look at other varieties and discover new tastes and mm. new new applications for honey. And I think, you know, natural foods and foods produced in New Zealand are really trending positively. So I can't see a, a harm in, in having a whole range of different honeys that we promote internationally. Yeah. yeah. And how awesome would that be? Um, and we see different types of honey on the shelves, including even just a generic bottle that just says honey. So when there's the, those, it's sometimes the supermarket brands and things that it's just honey or liquid honey, what is that? Is it a particular type of honey or is it like a blend of different things? In general, <laughs> I would probably recommend looking at the prices. And if it's cheap, it's it will all be honey. Don't get me wrong. In New Zealand, you're not getting honey cut with sugar or, you know, any crap like that. You, yeah. you are buying honey. But you will be buying honey that is undesirable. So mm. it will be um, pasture honeys in general. So it'll be blends. Okay. And generally stuff that doesn't fit in a certain category. You know, it's not exactly Riwriwa honey. It's not Manuka. It's not um, Kamahi. It's uh, unlabeled. You know, it's, we're not really sure what it is. So we'll put yeah. it in a different pile, which becomes a bush honey. So it's, or it's a blended honey usually. Um, the tricky part comes with the liquid honeys because there's not many varieties in New Zealand that will stay a liquid for a period of time. Mm. Get a few kind of like honeydews and beach honeys and things like that. But one of the ways to keep it liquid is to pasteurize it. So basically heat it for a period of time and break the sugar molecules in and then you'll get a, a liquid honey, and then you'll probably want to really filter it so that it's clear and not um, got, you know, bits of stuff in it, which makes it easy to use because you can squeeze it out of a nice squeezy bottle, but when you pasteurise it, you've lost a lot of the really amazing nutrients that are in 
in raw honey, which is like what we do where we don't add any heat. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you're still buying honey. You're still buying real honey from the supermarket. It's probably honey that's been bought from small-time beekeepers really cheap by big players and filtered and packaged and sent out. So not always those people who they've bought it from are getting a fair deal is probably mm. what I would say. If, you know, your best option is same as anything is to buy local, buy from a small beekeeper, go to your farmer's market, you know, have a look around. Has someone got a roadside stall or something? That's going to be the best honey that you can get, something that's yeah. not pasteurized and it's not fine filtered. It's really interesting and that's maybe clarified or <laughs> lifted the cloud of confusion over those um, confusing labels that you can see at, at the supermarket or um, and particularly when it is just the liquid honey. <laughs> it's one, I guess, reassuring that in New Zealand it's definitely going to be honey, but I, I would say obviously the quality of it is very different, sort of yeah. what you were implying. Yeah. Yeah, and like we get questions quite often. So we might have um, someone loves Aldewa honey, but they'll notice in between batches that like the colour will slightly change or the taste might slightly vary. And that's because everything that we do is produced in small batches and it's very direct. You know, it comes out yeah. of the hive, it's processed in a small batch and then it's packed. It's not, we're not blending things and you know, one ton mixes or something. I don't really know how they do it. I'm just making that up. But, you know, it's not blended in huge, big vats. But when you're buying honey that tastes exactly the same all of the time, it does raise some questions like, what are they doing here that makes it always taste exactly the same? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's like anything. It's like, you know, the chicken that you buy in the supermarket will taste the same all the time. And if you raised your own chickens, they would probably taste a little bit different. But yeah. when anything's produced on a large scale, it changes the quality. Mm, mm. Really interesting. And thinking about your work and where you're wanting to take the company, what would be some concerns that you have with regards to, I mean, maintaining the health of your bees and the current environmental um, changes, but also within the context of the whole food system? Yeah, I love that question. Um, it's a real, it's been a real battle with us for the last few years of how to get that growth and get the company to a point where it's sustainable. You know, where it's actually generating enough income to look after the bees properly and do things in the way that we have decided to do things, so that we have, you know, the least environmental impact and we're producing the best product for our customers. The thing that we've found, and I really uh, found this on your episode with Angela as well, was that it's really hard to do that in New Zealand. It's really mm. hard as a small producer to get traction in supermarkets or within your local areas to and and because of the volume of product and the honey that's available within New Zealand, you can't get, you know, really high prices for it. We, we haven't so far been able to make enough money to make it work within New Zealand as small producers with really high ethical values, which is yeah. 
quite a hard pill to swallow um, and we have really flogged ourselves trying to make that work. I think for us it's really a struggle between wanting to keep that amazing product in New Zealand, sell it to Kiwis and have it eaten and you know the, the health benefits kind of reaped within our country trying to balance that up with making enough money to keep the company going is a real challenge. And I think what we've come to is that we're going to need to export some of our product because that seems to be the most sustainable way to increase our our revenue. And as sad as, as it is, if you're not making any money, it doesn't matter how sustainable you are, you can't keep going. You you have to, your company has to make money to continue to produce its yeah. product. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's a toss-up. And I think for us it's going to be doing both, trying to get a real sweet spot in an export market where we can get some more value from our product in terms of revenue exporting small amounts as a real niche product and trying to get you know the export dollars that we can which will basically offset our business within New Zealand um, and help kind of support that Mm. so it's definitely a tricky one because there's lots of implications when you're starting to look at exporting but yeah, I, I guess for us, we we feel like we're probably in a place where we need to to, to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, it's kind of sad and frustrating that it is so hard for small local businesses in New Zealand to get that traction. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, we have that kind of duopoly supermarket set up, which is getting more and more difficult to get your product on supermarket Mm. shelves. And more and more of our population is buying from the supermarket and especially things like lockdown. I mean, I'm not, we don't really have much of a choice. We, We need these lockdowns to keep everyone safe, but it does just redirect people back to your big supermarkets. Yeah. Um, yeah. And away from from small producers in a way. Yeah, it, it is it is a hard one and there is a real price drive in New Zealand as well. We do get a lot of people's comment on the price. Um, yeah. And we're barely breaking even on the prices that we have. So it is a challenge. It's definitely a challenge, but it's a great place to produce amazing products. And I think we have seen an increase at the farmer's market of people shopping regularly at the farmer's market. Every time we have a lockdown, it's knocked back and people don't come back um, as much as they have. But, you know, I do think year on year it's building and people are wanting to know more about where their food comes from and it's just going to be an ongoing challenge I think yeah yeah and I mean all of us as eaters vote with our wallets in a way um and what can we all be doing that's going to make a difference to the way we purchase and consume honey I mean go to your farmer's market go to your farmer's market every Saturday or every Sunday whenever it's on and Buy as much as you can from there because it's going to be more nutrient dense. It's going to be, have a lower carbon footprint because it's come from close to you. 
In terms of your honey, it's going to have more local pollen in it, so it's going to be better for your immune system and your hay fever. And um, you're going to be supporting small food producers because at the end of the day, if we lose too many more small food producers, we're really hurting our long-term food security. Yeah. Um, because if we can't get stuff from overseas as easily, we're all going to start looking to who's producing it locally. And if there's no one yeah. left, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. So, yeah, do that. Buy from buy as much as you can from small producers. There's pretty much anything you want to buy food-wise in New Zealand. Someone small is making it. And if yeah. you can divert a little bit of your grocery budget towards them it's really gonna help and you can guarantee that every time you place an order with a small producer they get a notification on their phone and they like their heart skips a little beat and they're excited and they're stoked and then they'll pack that order with their own hands in general you know you can pretty much guarantee that countdown doesn't do a little dance every time they get your online shopping order. <laughs> you know, and i think it's going to always be a bit of both we still buy stuff from countdown don't get me wrong but as much as we can we try to divert that money to small producers mm. yeah, yeah yeah and i mean sort of off the back of that and maybe it's actually the, the same as what you've just said but if you had one wish and you could change something in the world of food and health, what would it be? Yeah, I, I think it is along those same lines. I think people really knowing where their food comes from is important. You know, know where your meat is produced, know where your fish is coming from, know who's making your honey as much as you can, as much of what's going into your mouth, the more of that stuff that you you can identify where it's come from the better um yeah and get get them to like teach your kids where food comes from don't let them think that meat is just something that comes in a packet from the supermarket you know let them know that that was an animal once and it's you know being butchered and hopefully humanely in a really nice way or that it's been hunted and it didn't know that its life was about to end until it was gone, you know. Teach them, teach them what food is and where it comes from. It's so important. And if we lose mm. touch with it, we're really, we're really losing touch with what it is to eat. I think and nourish yeah. yourself. Yeah, completely, completely agree, and just love that. And and it's really important to check in all the time because, as you said, with the lockdowns and things always changing and our sort of shopping habits being forced to change because of that. Sometimes when things then change back and we do have things open up again, we're kind of stuck in those other habits still. And it's like, oh, hold on, I'm going to go back to the farmer's market or I'm going to go back and actually support that local, um, you know, bread maker or the beekeepers or whatever it may be. Um, and it's just constantly having to check in when, when everyone's on that hamster wheel of, life trying to get through their day-to-day what would your three take-home messages be around beekeeping and honey and how we should be responsibly consuming honey I suppose I guess it's kind of this some of the things I've covered if if you're buying honey try and buy it from someone small um try and buy it from someone local and if they can take back their jars and refill them or there's some type of 
situation like that, then that's awesome. Um, make sure you're buying raw honey. It's not so much of a problem in New Zealand. Pasteurization is pretty uncommon in New Zealand, but buy raw honey and try and get stuff that hasn't been filtered too much. You know, you want all those bits of pollen and propolis or whatever's floating around. You want that in there. It's all good for you. Um, if you've got land, if you've got, you know, a farm or, or bush blocks, contact a local beekeeper and see if they're looking for sites. You know, you you could get some nice free honey out of it, and that's amazing. And you could yeah. be helping someone find somewhere to put their bees. Um, and I guess thirdly, if you're if you're into bees, that's awesome. If you've got some beehives, that's fantastic, and keep going with it. It's a great hobby. But make sure that you're being really responsible about your bees. You know, make sure you're registered on AppyWeb. Make sure you're doing your disease returns. Make sure you're treating for disease. Make sure you're looking after your bees properly. Join your bee club because one of the issues that we have as commercial beekeepers, and I put us very much on the lower scale of commercial beekeepers, is the, the spread of disease within New Zealand. Mm. Um so be responsible for your bees, the same as any type of pets, and make sure you're doing those things properly. And also make sure you surrender any bee products at the border. When, when we're allowed to travel again, they are pretty hardcore at the border about honey, but that's what's keeping extra diseases from coming into New Zealand that could really have a huge impact on our, on our beekeeping industry. So... Don't try and smuggle in honey from America or anywhere else. <laughs> Just leave it leave it outside the border or dispose of it at the border. We don't want any more diseases getting past our mm. borders. Mm. It's such a good one. I know it's not even front of mind because we're not traveling or anything at the moment, yeah. <laughs> but it is so important, isn't it? That, I guess that it's people just a understand hope that one why. day we will. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think some, you know, I think a lot of people know they are not necessarily allowed to bring honey in, but I think a lot of people don't understand why and yeah. and how big of an impact it would be if they did. Yeah, and it seems stint like, oh, I really want to try what honey's like from Australia or from Venezuela or wherever. And and that's it would be interesting for sure, but I think that's one thing I've learned how devastating, you know, when the Varroa mite got into New Zealand, how devastating that was for beekeeping. I mean, mm. it's like anything, you know, like when Embovis got in, that was devastating for cattle farmers and dairy farmers. So, yeah, it, it seems like everyone's being a bit on edge, but actually it's super important. Yeah. So key message, biosecurity is there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Those yeah. sniffer dogs are there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And if listeners want to find out more and support you and the family and your business, where can they find you? Um, that would be fantastic if they can find us on social media. We're um, always hammering the social media, so um, Instagram and Facebook, it's at Hunt and Gather Beco. And we have our website is huntandgatherbeco.com. Uh, so they can go on there and buy any of our products. We've got a blog and lots of information about what we do. Uh, they can look up our country calendar episode on demand. 
That's great. And and where should we be looking out to see if Hunt and Gather Bee Coat jars of honey popping up on the shelves? Whereabouts might we see it? Sure. So we have a stockist page on our website where people can see cool. where it's stocked. Yeah. But if you're in Auckland, Faro Fresh is kind of the easiest place. They've got six stores across Auckland. If you're in Wellington, um, Common Sense Organics, Moore Wilson's, it's in all of their stores. Um, 2022, next year, we'll be hoping to stock more New Worlds. So if you own a New World supermarket, slide into my DMs or if you <laughs> know a great New World, send me an email and I'll hit them up. But that's going to probably be our next step. But, yeah, hit up our website or order straight from us, then we get the margin that would otherwise go to the supermarket, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And that's a really key point, like come, going, coming to you directly. Um, and a lot of people shopping online at the moment, so it's just another thing that you can easily get online. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, all contactless at the moment. It's all delivered straight yeah. to your door. So that's great. no excuses. <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me today Hannah and all the best for this upcoming season I hope that the flowers and the bees do their job thanks Nikki yeah it's an exciting time of year it's all starting in the next couple of weeks so yeah we're um, watching the weather forecast with great anticipation every week and hoping for the best. So, yeah. no, thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's been great to chat and, yeah, really enjoyed all your questions. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe so you can find out when new episodes are released. And if you love the podcast, please consider leaving a review so more people can discover it. In the meantime, you can follow the podcast and my work over on Instagram and Facebook at Nourish with Nikki. And to find out more about working with me one-to-one to improve your gut health, energy and mood, then visit NikkiHurstHouse.com to book your free discovery call today.